listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of Special Reports on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. I'm the host for today's show, uh, along with my co-host here. Do you want to introduce yourself, Dennis? I'm Dennis Kennedy, and in my other role, I'm the co-host of the Kennedy Mile Report on the Legal Talk Network. And this show is being recorded at the ABA Tech Show 30th Anniversary Edition, which is being held here in Chicago, Illinois. And uh, we're here to cover this event and its highlights for our listeners. Joining Dennis and I now, we have today's keynote speaker, Cindy Cohn. Cindy is the executive director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Uh, so before we start talking a little bit more substantively, Cindy, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the Electronic Frontier Foundation? Well, the Electronic Frontier Foundation is uh, celebrating its 25th anniversary this year, so we've been around longer than the World Wide Web. And our job is to make sure that when you go online, your rights go with you. So we work a lot on free speech, on privacy. We also do work around the balance of intellectual property laws when you go online. We have been actively involved for the past 10 years in dealing with the NSA surveillance of people's internet activities. And that's kept us pretty busy. But um, in the last month or so, things involving Apple and the FBI have kind of uh, overtaken us at EFF. Cindy, you talked uh, at today's keynote about the NSA spying, specifically its monitoring of communications uh, or internet communications. Could you talk a little bit about what it is the NSA is doing and what it is that you're doing uh, in response to that? Sure. The focus of our live case, uh, our, our active case, is the case is called Jewel versus NSA. And the focus of it is the NSA tapping into the internet backbone and essentially making copies of all the communications that travel across the internet backbone. One copy goes to your destination and the other copy goes into NSA custody where they do a series of filters and uh, at some point full text searching and then uh, stuff that matches their searches they keep and we have been trying to get the courts to have a ruling on whether this sort of mass surveillance um, is legal or constitutional or not since 2006 and it's it's been a struggle. The government has claimed secrecy. We got a pretty big boost in 2013 when uh, far more information came out as a result of the Snowden leaks. And then the government started admitting things that it had been refusing to admit before then. So the case is now moving along. We were just granted some limited discovery against the NSA, um, which is somewhat unprecedented. But we're hoping at some point to get the U.S. judiciary to decide whether mass surveillance of Americans' internet communications on the backbone is legal or not. How do you, uh, just going to what you just said, how do you even start to think about doing discovery of the NSA? <laughs> like, uh, how would you formulate what that's even going to look like? Well, it's going to look like every other discovery. It's going to be interrogatories and document requests and requests for admission. So we're, you know, I, I do think that the standard tools of litigation are, are useful in a range of cases. Um, I think the government's going to claim secrecy and we'll probably have some fights about that. But the judge has at least ruled as a threshold matter that we get to conduct the discovery and, you know, it's 10 years, but at least it's some progress. So we're going to ask him some questions. Some of the questions we need to ask him, I don't think involve national security at all. I, you know, in order to figure out who backbone surveillance affects, 
you need to know a lot about AT&T's network. Um, our clients are a class action of AT&T lawyers. I, I don't think AT&T's network is a state secret, so we ought to be able to get some of that information and use it to feed into the government's admissions to create a little fuller picture of what's going on that I think will help the court really think about how the Constitution and the statutes ought to apply here. Could you, you, you used a, a graphic during your presentation, which obviously we can't show. Uh, this is a, a radio show. <laughs> but could you kind of describe for our listeners what's happening with this data sure. as it's flowing and, and how the government's diverting it? Sure. So I suspect some of your listeners understand that the internet has kind of layers in it. And one of the base layers of the internet is called the internet backbone obvious metaphor. It's kind of the central thing. The internet backbone is uh, the place where if you're, say, an AT&T customer and you're emailing a Verizon customer or you're doing a Google search, it's, it's where your traffic gets handed off from your network to the broader internet. Um, these are called peering stations. That's what the AT&T calls them. So at those stations, there's a whole lot of traffic that goes, and, and that includes your email, it includes social networking, it includes visiting website, it includes anything. I mean, the, the fiber optic cables that carry your communications, just they don't distinguish between what you're doing. It's generally not the phone system unless you're using voice over IP, but otherwise everything you do on the internet. And what we have evidence of from 2006 is a bank of fiber optic splitters, which is a very dumb technology that takes the light that's carried on the fiber optic cables and splits it in two. So it basically makes a copy. One copy of those communications go on to their merry way. The second copy of the communications go into a room on Folsom Street in San Francisco, the specific evidence we have, that you can't get into unless you have an NSA clearance and that has very fancy machinery, semantic traffic analyzers is what the techs know this stuff as, but basically very fancy filtering machines. And then the NSA looks through this huge stream of traffic for what it's looking for, and it does this in a series of What's it looking filters. for? It's looking for names? It's looking well, for, it's do not, we have any clue? We don't really. I mean, we believe that it's internet identifiers. So it, instead of being your name, it'll probably be your email address or an IP address that's associated with your activities. They call them, um, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting the name. I think they're called identifiers. But the interesting thing or the important thing to me from a constitutional perspective is that the FISA court, there's a secret court that approves these processes generally. But the secret court doesn't approve the list of names. The NSA just gets to put the list of names or IP addresses. It could be, say, the IP address of uh, Al Jazeera, right? That would involve anybody who goes to that website as a potential person whose information would get snagged through these filters. You know, the specifics about what they're doing and how they're doing it is a state secret. They're guarding it. So I, I'm conjecturing a little bit based upon what we know, but... They go to the FISA court and they say, we are going to do this big process. And the FISA court says, okay, you can do this big process. But then the specifics of how they do the process are actually up to the agency itself. And this is important because I think that's a constitutional problem. I think that that doesn't meet the Fourth Amendment's requirements for a warrant. That's not a warrant. It's a programmatic approval. And the differences are really important. You know, I was, I was going to say, as you're describing this, it used to be that we thought with email and other things on the internet, everything was being broken up into these small packets, and they would go in different routes, and they'd be reassembled later. So it, it seems like there has to be a sophistication in this process that part of it is reassembling all these packets, which I think in the old days used to give us confidence that what we were going out there, because it's all split up, somebody couldn't put back together. But it sounds like it's 
much easier these days, or I guess just pure computing power that make it possible to put all this stuff back together. Yeah, the same technology that puts it back together, say on Verizon's end, if you're an AT&T customer and you're emailing Verizon, is available to the NSA in the middle, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's what's happening. I also think that, now I may be getting beyond my technical expertise here, but at the peering level, things aren't nearly as broken up as they are they mm -hmm. might be later and so I don't know that there's too much putting back together of your average message that has to happen at the place that they're gathering it but I could be wrong about that I mean it's you know my understanding from EFF's technologists is that it's hard to make generalized statements about how things get routed on the internet because it, it gets routed according to the most efficient way for the traffic to move. And so that's, it's hard to reverse engineer that into, well, what's going to happen to my message in this particular context? Because it's going to depend on what else is going on in the network and how the routing works. The other thing that's sort of been really interesting to me over the last year or so, this sort of post-Snowden era, is the very dark cloud that all of this puts over the willingness of people, especially in Europe, but in the rest of the world, to have any confidence in any data coming to the U.S. Yes. And so I assume you're hearing the same thing, but is that part of the impact that you're arguing in what you're doing? Or are you focused more on the constitutional and privacy issues? Well, EFF as a whole does a lot of things around that. I mean, the particular litigation that I'm doing, we're, we're standing on the strongest ground we can, and the strongest ground is the constitutional rights of Americans in America. That's just where the case law is the strongest. Mm -hmm. But as an organization, we also engage in activism and we build technologies. And the activism has been a lot working with people around the world around this. The foreign surveillance that the NSA does uh, under the Executive Order 12333 is very, very broad. And I think, you know, there's been a couple studies that have tried to quantify, you know, how much are American companies losing as a result of people being unwilling to you know, make their communications vulnerable to the NSA in this way. And, you know, other governments around the world are engaging in this too. So this is kind of cold comfort for a lot of people. On the other hand, I think the NSA has more capability and has shown more willingness to use it than a lot of other countries. But, you know, certainly the companies are concerned about this. I think if you, you know, in the Apple FBI case, one of the things that Apple is concerned about is that, you know, the majority of its customers are not Americans in America. The same is true for Google and the same is true for Facebook. And so I think you can track some of the increased security that those companies have offered to the concerns that people are not going to be willing to store their information with American companies. The other piece is that, the, you know, the U.S. government takes the position that if a company has the information and it's an American company, they have to turn that information over even if it's not stored in the United States. And Microsoft is in a big case now involving some data of a European customer, I believe, that was stored in Ireland. And the U.S. Justice Department says, you, Microsoft, have to reach into your Irish data farms and pull something out for us, even if you store it in Ireland. And so that's particularly troubling. And and I think Microsoft has done a, a really good job standing up and saying, you know, we can't run our business if the price of using an American company is that the American government has not only free-range access to this information, but free-range without the privacy protections that Americans enjoy. If some of our listeners are out there thinking, as I understand it, this data diversion, if diversion may not be the right word for it, but 
as a sort of diverting out of the pipeline and they're searching it and then they're sending it back into the pipeline. If they're not storing all of this, they're storing the stuff that kind of matches their searches and, or where there's something that they want to look at further. So if I'm an average citizen and I'm not likely to have my an identifier that's in the NSA system, why should I be concerned about them sniffing for terrorism or something like this in this data? Why does it matter to me as a citizen? Well, I think a couple things should matter to most citizens. One is I think all of us believe that the First Amendment is important even if we don't want to go stand on a street corner with a sign. Our constitutional values are about the necessary preconditions to a functioning democracy. And even if you're not a target, chances are you know somebody who might be or you support causes that may not be popular right now. Um, and so I think it's troubling to give the government this kind of power. We know that there is mission creep, that it may start off being about terrorism. We already know that a lot of the government surveillance isn't about terrorism. It's about foreign intelligence, which can mean trade, which can mean all sorts of other things. It's already crept beyond the kind of story that they'd like you to believe, you know, this being only about al-Qaeda. It's, it's much broader already. And, and it's starting to leak into domestic law enforcement as well. So I do think that people ought to worry about this, even if it's not going to personally involve them. But I think the number of people who it may personally reach is much broader than most people think. And uh, we certainly, you know, I believe that every social movement ever started with people having a private conversation. You know, our founding fathers used encryption. They needed to protect their communications from the British who were opening the mail, right? Our country was founded on this idea that, uh, you know, if our country, if you never had anything to hide and you had nothing to fear, then we wouldn't have the United States. We'd still be a colony of, of the British, right? Because that's what that took. Same thing in the civil rights era. In my lifetime, the people who care about gay rights, that was a sensitive conversation that you could have. So I think you have to think more broadly than just terrorism, because certainly the government is and the FBI is. And you have to think about what kind of society you want to live in. Yeah, I was thinking when you asked your question that I just remember probably far too many times my email address has been spoofed, and I can figure out it's been spoofed, but I don't know that somebody searching on something with my spoofed email address isn't going to be picked up. But I, I know we want to touch on Apple versus FBI, but I go back to the early the early era of EFF, and I know the mission always felt to me to be like the people's advocate for use of the Internet, and we had somebody out looking out for our welfare out there. And I've always loved what uh, EFF has done on the education side as well as the advocacy side. So there's a lot of guidelines and information on your website that I find that are really useful. So I, I want to call that out because I, I've always appreciated that. And I think it's been timely and well thought out and well done. Thank you. But one of the things you did highlight today was Apple versus FBI. And that's the hot topic. So where do things stand <laughs> on that today? Well, Tuesday, the magistrate judge will um, look at the briefs from the government and the 40 amicus, I think 42 amicus briefs, the vast majority on Apple's side, a couple on the government side that have come in. And she'll make her first decision on it. I don't think anybody thinks it'll end there. And we'll go on. So, you know, as a legal process matter, that's where we are right now. I'm going to try to go down there, although they just told us we had to be there at 5 a.m. in Riverside Court if we wanted to have a <laughs> chance to get in. So I may be a little bleary-eyed. Um, but I'd like to hear, the judge has actually said that she wants to hear from the technical people on both sides. So I think there will be testimony, which will be interesting and not the usual thing in these kinds of cases. But I think the judge has indicated that she's very interested in this 
question about whether the FBI really needs Apple to rewrite their iOS or not. And uh, there have been dueling declarations from the government's experts and Apple's experts. So it'll be, I think it'll be very interesting to see what comes. You know, overall, though, I mean, the FBI has been saying that they are going dark, is their word for it, for many, many years now. You know, I... I debated Attorney General Louis Free. You know, we well didn't debate him directly, but we we were trading this in the '90s. Um, so this is an old fight. It's one that we won the first round of. Uh, many people call this Crypto Wars Part Two, and so it's going to continue regardless of what happens in Riverside County. There's another case in Brooklyn involving a meth dealer. So if you're worried about mission creep and that, you know, if we do this for one terrorist attack, that'll just be it and it'll go on. It actually started with the meth dealer, accused meth dealer in Brooklyn. So law enforcement wants this power across the board. They want to be able to either force companies to be able to attack their own security or I think really create a world in which somebody building a technology won't build in the security in the first place because they don't want to have to rewrite it. And that's the big concern for us is we've worked hard in the last 20 years to get devices that are secure, to get an internet that's even marginally more secure. And for the FBI to be pushing against that, I think is very, very troubling. And it's troubling for all of us who rely on these technologies. I think lawyers, especially every lawyer I know has attorney client information on their phone. We know that 3.1 million phones were stolen in 2013 alone. 1.4 million phones were lost in 2013 alone. That's from consumer reports. And those are the only ones that are reported. Most people I know who lose their phones don't report it. So I think that number is very, very low. Um, so we all have a stake in this because we all have our intimate information on these phones. And, you know, one thing that is consistently true from technologists across the board is if you build a backdoor in, if you build a way in, you cannot limit the use of that to just the good guys. The bad guys will get it, whether that's a foreign government or hackers or the Russian mob. Once you make the technology vulnerable to somebody outside your control, you being the user of the tech holder of the technology, it's going to be vulnerable to others. That's just a truth that we can't really get on. So I think that regardless of what happens on Tuesday, there's going to be continued fights in the courts, and I think there's going to be continued efforts in Congress as well. One of the uh, final questions at your keynote today is one I'm going to repeat now, which is what can lawyers who are listening to this podcast do now to help support you in this case or in your work more generally? Well, you know, EFF is a charity. We're member supported. So the first thing you can do is to join. We have really great t-shirts and hats and stickers and stuff. So it's worth your while. But that is certainly one thing. I'm now executive director. So I have to say that the board <laughs> will yell at me if I don't. For lawyers, especially, we have a cooperating attorneys mailing list. We get far more requests for help than we can possibly do. We're, we're pretty big now. We've got 15 lawyers. But, you know, as lawyers know, that's still pretty small for the kinds of fights we take on. So we partner with law firms and lawyers in most of our cases. And then we pass on cases where we'd like to see people get help, but they just aren't impact cases. They're just not cases we can take either because of our capacity or because they're not going to set a precedent. And so we have a cooperating attorney's mailing list and lawyers who are interested in that can either email me or better yet, email my intake person. His name is Amol. It's intake at EFF.org or info at EFF.org if you want to be added to that list. We have a national practice. I regularly go to that list and say, 
I need a lawyer in, you know, Birmingham, Alabama, who can help be our local counsel in a case. So it doesn't matter where you are. We end up needing people. And we also, people need help all across the country. So those are two things that people can do. People who are technologists, we also have a cooperating technologist list where we do referrals for people who need expert witnessing and things like that. So I know your audience has a mix of people and especially technologists who understand how the legal process works. We're always in short supply of those. Yeah, it sounds like some great pro bono opportunities for lawyers who, who want to do some more pro bono work in some very interesting and difficult areas. And I thoroughly recommend EFF.org. Like I said, the education resources are phenomenal and on a lot of these issues. I assume your coverage of uh, these ongoing cases is going to be top-notch and, and a really good place to get good, solid information. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we currently have, we also, the other thing I should mention is we also have an action center and we do things like write Congress and, and things like that. And we have an action going right now to try to urge President Obama to do the right thing on cryptography that we just launched. So uh, people can tweet at the president uh, a picture of him holding up his iPad and uh, urging him not to think that there is a middle ground in Washington, D.C., when they say, can we find a middle ground, they mean, can you just lose and the FBI just get access to everything? That's going on right now and will continue for the next couple of weeks because Obama has said that he doesn't want to support legislation in this area, but then he also said some unfortunate things at South by Southwest about this, and so we want to put pressure on him. You know, he, he actually does understand technology better than certainly a lot of other people in government, and he needs to step up and do the right thing here for Internet users. Yeah. Well, we really uh, thank you for the work that you do. It's really important work, and uh, I applaud you and the EFF for carrying the torch for civil rights uh, in cyberspace as well as in the real world. I would say I feel so much better, you know, having met you, that your <laughs> eyes are, are looking out for us as individuals on the internet. And I think, like I said, that always seemed to be the purpose of EFF from the beginning. And so... Uh, I feel we're in good hands having well, met you. thank you. It is such a pleasure and an honor to get to do this work, honestly. It's fun. Every day I wake up excited about what we get to do and, and important, and it's because people support us. Well, thanks a lot, Cindy Cohn, for joining us from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and uh, that does it for this special report. Uh, this has been another edition of Legal Talk Network Special Reports. This is Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. And until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.